This is your pal Noble coming to you from cyberspace and to welcome you to episode 13 of the Noble Dreams podcast. Today we have our second half of our conversation with Jim Rooney and a whole lot more stories and amazing stuff from him, including probably the stuff about John Prine that I alluded to last week and realized afterwards is probably in the second half of the conversation Thus is my state of mind right now. I'm still uh, pretty sick and mentally uh, compromised to some degree as a result of the illness that is with me at the moment. Uh, So I'm a bit forgetful and a bit foggy. And so I've been doing some little things like that. No big deal. Uh, So one thing I wanted to draw attention to because I... I I get to listen to the conversations very closely in the editing phase and there's only one little instance where this isn't true in the conversation I just wanted to bring attention that when Jim shares stories and he shares especially his sort of things that he's learned throughout his life that would be probably considered wisdom he almost always introduces those phrases with I think or for me or something like that and the point here is not to judge our our uh, guests based on how they use language. It's to use it as an example of language that I thought would be maybe valuable to look at in a little way. I personally believe that, but that precluding, not precluding, what's the word? Beginning a statement with I think or I believe is a really effective way to make it clear that although there may be a judgment within your following statement, you're not just making a judgment. And if you, if one just makes a statement, a bold statement like, uh, grapes are gross. Well, if you say something like that in a group of people, it's very inviting for argument to come into to the, to the realm because people are going to be like, well, why would you, who are you to make an assessment like that? And also, grapes aren't gross. No way, grapes are the best. And people be, no, grapes are gross. No, grapes are the best. And before you know it, there's a big food fight. However, if you make the same statement, I think grapes are gross. Or I do not enjoy eating grapes because I don't like the flavor. And sometimes my belly hurts after I've eaten them. Which, by the way, is an example. Super not true for me. Um, Then it also is... It's your truth. You're bringing truth into the equation. And truth is much different than judgment because it doesn't invite argument in the same way, is my experience. So if I say I think grapes are gross and someone says, okay, I see that you think grapes are gross. That's interesting. I've learned something about you. I have a different opinion. My opinion is that grapes are really delicious. That's my experience of them. And unless someone is really touchy and in a state that's already uh they're already reacting to something else 
or they're already in a heightened state of emotion, it's much less likely that you're going to have argument arise from sharing your own personal truth. Now, of course, there's no guarantees, and like I just mentioned, people obviously are often triggered by different things and in irrational states where they're not, or we're not in our best modes. And sometimes you can just say something like, I think, whatever, I think grapes are gross, and they'll just blow up at you because they're not in the space of really being on board with all of their uh, rational, grounded faculties or whatever. So I really like it when people use those statements, introducing what they're, what they're sharing. And I think there's value to it. And when one starts, when one say, if you write an article, for instance, if one of us writes an article, if I write an article, and I don't use I think statements or I believe or for me or to me or whatever, there may be some inherent uh, assumption that it's my belief because I'm saying it. And that benefit of that might be given to someone in person as well. However, I think there's a lot of value to distinguishing what's your opinion versus what you're stating as fact. My experience is that if people are just stating facts as if they know the truth of a situation, but it's based on a judgment, then I'm usually not very trusting of that. I don't trust someone who claims to have all the answers. I don't trust someone who is presenting something as if it's the end-all be-all. And therefore, I'm really interested much more in what people's truths are than just these sort of thrown out beliefs which aren't really grounded in much except for I don't know what and that's what I'm more interested to try to find out so anyways that's my little rant for today probably isn't as coherent as I would have liked it to be and it's the best I got for right now um and so I just want to say as always thank you so much for listening to and supporting the show in all the ways that you do if you have anything to send in, which I'm always open to and grateful for, nobledreamspod at gmail.com is the best place to do that. If you want to follow along and see more pictures um, from the episodes and stuff, Instagram is at noahdaysnoblenights, at noahdaysnoblenights. There is a tip jar at the end of the show notes, which allows you to donate financially to the podcast if that is within your means and of your interest. And it is immensely appreciated to help pay for equipment, time, transportation, and all the love that I put into this podcast. And, of course, your support in other ways is just as meaningful to me and maybe more. And also, the money is really helpful. So, thank you all so much. I hope you enjoy the second half of this conversation with Jin Rooney. He will be singing the song at the end, and it's a song of his own, which he'll introduce called Only the Best. I hope you are having and continue to have a wonderful week and you're learning some interesting stuff. And if so, just drop us a line. If this show is doing anything for you, drop me a line. I really, really love getting uh, reflections and feedback and stuff. Otherwise, it's just me sort of in this little echo chamber, which is fine. And what makes it really meaningful for me is the interaction and the contributions that you share. So please, please, please don't be shy. All right. All the best. Bye.
Yeah. It's a strange, uh, strange development that it seems at the heads of a lot of uh, like television and music and stuff like that are very uncreative people, <laughs> which, yeah. which you really hope it would be the other way around, who could really see the value in something that was unusual or something that was unique. Instead, they just see, oh, I don't think it's profitable. I don't think it's uh, viable in, a, in the market or this or that. According yeah. They, um, there have been some great people that actually don't, don't play music that have gone into gotten into the music world they they understand it they listen they appreciate it you know for instance john hammond the producer who Mm -hmm. you know from you name it from billy holiday to bruce springsteen he was involved in all these careers he didn't play music himself he actually was from a very wealthy family the vanderbilts but he had great instincts for music. And we do need listeners. You know, not everybody can play music, but the guy who ran Jack Clemens Publishing Company, he could tell a good song a mile away. He didn't play, he didn't sing, he, 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 but he knew a good song when he heard it. He was an audience, you know. Yeah. He was a perfect audience for that kind of music. And you could run a song by him, and he, he could just, no, nah, I don't think so, I don't, I don't hear it. And it wasn't. He wasn't talking about uh, a song's commercial potential. He just as a song. Yeah, just its merit. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Its essence. Yeah. Um, do you remember any specific um, people that you worked with that either you knew from the time when you met them or from the time you first heard or saw them um, that you were going to have a relationship with that person that was going to be important? Uh, well, it's uh, I, I yes and no. Um, I met John Prine, for instance, uh, at a festival in the mid '70s when I was living in Massachusetts. Back in Massachusetts, at that house, I formed a little band with Everett and Tennis Lily, the sons of Everett Lily, and um, I started playing shows around that New England area. And there were these festivals in the summer that we could get on. And I met John at one of these festivals up in Maine. And uh, we just hit it off. Uh, there, there was a like a performer's tent. Or maybe we were staying in some, maybe some kind of a motel. I think it had a bar. and We were in the bar. <laughs> and just talking. And I had heard some of his music but i wasn't totally familiar with it 1975 he he'd been at it for a couple of years and uh so i i was somewhat aware of him but i wasn't any expert on his music and but we just hit it off and then but that was that and then in 1978 three years later um Eric von Schmidt and I were writing this book about our life in Cambridge, and I was away from Nashville for three or four months. And I came back in the summer of 78, and John Prine was there at Jack Clements trying to make a record. And that's when we really started spending time together. And it was just a very natural thing. We just spent time together. I I liked his songs. He liked my songs. He liked the way I played, we could get together, we could sit down and strum guitars and sing all kinds of Hank Williams songs or any hillbilly song you want to name. We, 
between us, we knew a hell of a lot of songs. That's how we spent our time. And then John started, uh, he was he was at the end of a record label deal, and then asked, we, there was a group of us around Jack Clements that started playing together as a rhythm section. This is pretty common in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was this English drummer. This was an unusual combination of people. An English drummer named Tony Newman. Tony had played with Jeff Beck, with Mark Bolin, David Bowie, people like that mm-hmm. in England. A real English rock and roll drummer. And I can't, I, I really don't know how he came to Nashville, but he was there. Ted hadn't been there long and somehow or another found his way over to Jack's and the very first day I was back from being away with Eric von Schmidt writing that book the very first day I came into Jack Clemens we'd always come in the kitchen in the back coming through the back door into the kitchen and there's this guy standing there with curly hair and and he's English. I suddenly opened his mouth. I said, he's English. Tony Newman. And um, I didn't know him. And at that point, I didn't. I had actually met him once because Jeff Beck played at the Newport Jazz Festival. But he had Louis Fourteenth hair back then. I didn't recognize <laughs> him. So at any rate, uh, Tony came in and we went into Jack's office where he just sat behind kind of a big table had guitar out, and that's the way he would start today. Sit around with a guitar and start strumming and sing a song or two. And I get, he had another guitar on the wall, I get a guitar down, we start strumming. And then this Irish guitar player came in. His name is Philip Donnelly. And he'd come there with, originally came to the States with Donovan, and then he hooked up with Lee Clayton who wrote Ladies Love Outlaws and a bunch of other songs, and came to Nashville. So Philip had gravitated over to Jack's. This was all while I was away. And then this girl, Rachel Peer, came in. She was a bass player who I, I did know, played, played with her, with Jack, quite a bit. And so we were in the office strumming away, and Jack said, well, why don't you go upstairs? The studio was upstairs. Why don't don't you go upstairs and fool around? So we did. We went upstairs, and he had an engineer up there, a guy named Kurt Allen, and we started playing songs. And one of the songs which I brought to Jack was a Rolling Stones tune called No Expectations, and Bill Keith and I had recorded it as a bluegrass song on one of Bill's albums. And when I played it for Jack, he just loved it, the way I did it. It's not the way Keith Richards does it at all. And uh, so I, I got that song out. I figured Tony would like it. Drummer. And um, we recorded it. Just like that, we could do this. Because we were just doing this song. And then that was the first time Rachel and Tony and Philip and I played together. Oh, this is good. So we, so we did some more. We did another song, Gypsy Woman. And then then we just started playing together quite a bit in the studio. And that's when and so John Prine said, "Why don't he was really writing a lot at this point. By this point I'm talking about 78, 79 in there. 
80. He was really writing a lot. And we'd just go in the studio and play whatever he had. And um, that eventually, he had lost his big-time record deal with Elektra, and he, Steve Goodman also had, was his best friend, and Steve had leukemia, and Steve was also out of a record deal and knew he didn't have all the time in the world, so he started his own label called Red Pajamas, and because he was wearing red pajamas a lot, he was in the hospital all the time, and he, and John, John decided that he'd start his own label too, oh boy. So by this time, it was about 1983. And all these demos we'd had, we were piling up. Like, you know, this was, we were using two-inch reels of tape. You know, mm-hmm. they, they only get 15 minutes on a reel, so the reels do pile up. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he asked me if I could help him sort it out. You know, I'd played on everything. And so, sure, fine, we'll do that. And then, so that became the first album, Aimless Love, on, on Oh Boy. And uh, that's how that started. So, you know, you just ease into these things with, and that was the beauty of Jack Clement's place, was that any day you went there, you did not know what was going to happen exactly. You might have some idea, but maybe not. And, but you would go there every day. Because something would happen. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's creative idleness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I've been so pumped that, that John Prine's getting a, such a resurgence in the last couple of years. Oh, yeah. It seems cool. like he's cool. having a great time with it, too. He never went away. But well, He uh, never went away. No. But, but he went away from the public eye in the, in the well, same now, way that he Well, they're has, kind of, yeah. there's, there's some help. He's getting some help from his wife, yeah. <laughs> his son-in-law, or his, his stepson. Uh, they're doing a hell of a job uh, at taking advantage of this time in his life and, and making it work. Yeah. So, you know, there we are. That's... Um, 1983 or so till 2019. I don't know how many years that is, but it's getting on. It's a lot, yeah. <laughs> Do you still get to see him? Oh, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. I, I try to, and we still were working now and then. Um, we did another duets album about three years ago. Yeah. And then we are talking about doing an album with his brothers, Billy and Dave. But John is working so much right now, and he also has had a couple of health problems. He's had quite a few health problems over the years, but um, so I'm hoping we might get that done maybe early next year, but we'll see. Yeah. No, no he's he's just a very, very in, in unique individual, and um, there's nobody like him. And a great friend. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better friend. And... Um, our relationship is just solid as a rock. It's just, we like each other and have been able to help each other at various times. We've been through some tough times together and come out the other side and that makes it even better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I, I, uh, his, his music has been such a big mainstay for, in my life for so long and it's it's been a real uh, it's been a real treat to be able to continue to 
But I, I've seen him live two times, and they're some of the favorite shows I've ever been to. And I've yeah. been to so many. And you'd think... He puts out. It's just... Puts out a lot. And, yeah. And he just seems so joyful about it and so sort yeah. of at ease. Yeah. But I don't know. It's, it's He's just one of the most endearing people I've ever seen. And yeah. just he's... And it's all real. Yeah. Not fake. Yeah. It's like if this guy's faking it, he's yeah. <laughs> out of control, yeah. good at it. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think you could maintain that no. for so long. Another another person that I was excited to see that you uh, worked with that's... I, I guess I was only introduced to about six years ago is Towns Van Zant. Uh-huh. Um, you have any, any Towns stories? That... Well, uh, yeah. Um, I'm, I met Towns... First time, uh, Eric, when I was still at Woodstock, uh, I did some producing there. Um, I was managing the studio, and Eric von Schmidt came up to make a record. And um, so uh, he did two albums there. The first album, I wasn't the producer, but I wound up kind of having a hand in it anyway. But uh, the second album, I was... The producer and we were delivering it to the guy who ran the label Kevin Eggers and he lived in Brooklyn so we went down to Brooklyn to his house and there was Towns Van Zandt this guy Towns Van Zandt I had never heard of him I didn't know anything about him but he was a nice pretty laid-back guy and uh, he had just finished an album with Jack Clement as it turned out um, and uh, called the late great Towns Van Zandt, and when Hank Williams died, immediately he was always referred to as the late great Hank Williams. So I, I'm pretty sure that's what Towns had in his head when he called his own album that, kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference to Hank. And any rate, then when I did go to Nashville, which was maybe a I, I, I spent a few months there in uh, 73 and 4 and pretty much drinking, hanging out. And But I met Guy and Susanna Clark. There was a pub there, was a pub there uh, called Bishop's Pub, and it was a hangout for these songwriters from Houston. And it was uh, Rodney Crowell, uh, Towns, uh, Guy and Susanna Clark and Richard Dobson, they had all moved up to Nashville from Houston, and so, uh, and Towns was kind of the the ringleader. You could tell that, and they were just playing for tips, sit around in a circle and play for tips. There was a little pool table there and a beer joint. There was nothing going on really, but uh, that's when I met all of them. And once in a while, we go out to Towns's place, and he had a kind of a country shack with a porch on it you could sit out on the porch and pick and drink and smoke and whatever and um so that's how i got to know him and um and then i just soaked up his songs sort of the records that jack made with him had some of his best songs and um i but you know i i, I wasn't doing it, working with him in any any formal way at all ever so finally one day i went over to jack's and as i mentioned you never knew exactly what you were going to do and so um 
he had a white blackboard in the hallway with what was on the mark, what was going to happen in the studio for the next few days. And I saw Towns's name up there. And um, so I was talking to Jack. I see oh, Towns is coming to record. I said, who's, who's going to record him? He said, why don't you? So I said, okay. So it started the next day. <laughs> and uh, so the way Jack liked to work at this point, he'd be down in his office. He had big speakers down there. And he'd listen to what was going on upstairs. He was the official producer of this record. As, you know, he was the producer. And I was the engineer. And engineers, you're, you're not supposed to be, you know, putting in your two cents worth, really. Just turn the knobs. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. be quiet and turn, do your job. But since Jack, you know, and we were we were all kind of pals anyway. We were all in this together. But I found myself, you know, kind of running the session. And I actually added somebody to the musicians that he'd already picked. I added Mark O'Connor. I said, maybe we could use Mark. I said to Jack, I said, maybe we could use Mark O'Connor for, for if you want a fiddle or mandolin or something like that. He said, oh, yeah, we could do that. So I got Mark over there. So at any rate, we're recording. A couple of the musicians that Towns had brought with him, and then a couple that played a lot on around Jacks, Kenny Malone, the drummer, and Roy Husky, the bass player. And so uh, everything, you know, after the first day or so, everything was going really well. And Towns was in great form, and, you know, he could be uh, an asshole, could be get drunk and just uh, be stupid. And he had a bunch of people around him that always, like, worshipped him almost. And I think it just made him uncomfortable. And so he would kind of play games with them. And that just was never our relationship. That just never even entered the equation. So he was fine. We were getting, the songs were good, and, the, and he was singing, and the music was good. Everything was great. And I came down... Uh, I think the next morning I came in. I said, Cowboy, I said, uh, are we producing this together? <laughs> he said, I guess we are. <laughs> so we were. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that record. It's a, I think it's certainly one of his very best records. Which one is it? At My Window. At My Window, yeah. It really has him. It's It's got a couple of killer songs on it. A thing called uh, The Catfish Song. Just kills me. And... Uh, and it was, it was really showed him as a really good artist, man. He made some records, not the ones he made with Cowboy, but later on he made some records that he should have, shouldn't have put them out. They were just not great. They just weren't as good. He was drunk and he got there and not good. But, uh, so I'm happy about that. And, uh, we just always had a good understanding and um, and I liked um, another good friend was Guy Clark, Guy and Susanna Clark. And I never worked with them. Uh, Guy just was able to do what he did on his own without my help, sure. And um, but we were really good friends and enjoyed each other's company and um, just had a great relationship, you know. 
So you don't have to work with everybody you like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have to work with you either. Yeah. What, as far as working with people is concerned, they have to ask me. I don't ask them. Yeah. That's not the way it works, you know. So fortunately enough, I've asked. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I would say so. It's a pretty big list <laughs> Yeah, that you've gotten. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Do you think it seems to be that I get the sense that instead of, um, you know, you could be sitting here and just saying, I've worked with this person, this person, this person, this person, as if, you know, sort of like name dropping. But yeah. but but reading your book, it's more I get the sense of um, that each of these people that many of whom are many of which are names that we all know. Yeah. But the stories involved, they're not included to be. Um, hey, I know this person, or I've I've worked with this, but but it's like they're all these are real human relationships. Yeah, and I, I'm I guess I don't know if this I guess my question is somewhere along the lines of like, do you think your temperament has is good for being able to connect with people as people, and that people who are some famous people uh, respected and and saw that in you? Yeah, fame has never been much. It's never mattered to me one way or another. Um, it it's, doesn't really enter the picture uh, in my thinking. Um, I just like the music and and what people can do, and uh, I I have been very very lucky to work with some great artists and great musicians. Really, the musicians in Nashville are so good and so generous and fun to work with it's it isn't like work and yet we get a lot of work done uh and do it do it to a pretty high standard and uh i found that some of the best people are the least um self-serving they and and i think it is part of the work ethic in nashville or has been, is that you are in service of the song and the singer, the artist. You're not blowing your own horn. And you might be able to play rings around anybody, but that's not what we're up to here. We're serving the song. And many of these great players will say, I think I'll just lay out here. I don't hear anything. You know, I don't need to be talking all the time, <laughs> and I don't need to show everybody every lick I ever learned, which is great. That's those are people that are priceless, as far as I'm concerned. They just they just give you what what you want, what you need, and they're always thinking about the song and the singer, and and that that's I don't know. That's I I really value that. And it makes me look good as a producer. And my produ producing style is to let the artist and the musicians find out as much as they can together without interference from me uh, or anybody else and managers or other people. And and then what what I try to do is when I hear something I like, I say... I like that. Can we keep that? Can you th Now, some players just can't repeat what they just played. 
and you have to understand that too. So don't be asking that player to just repeat what he just did because he's not going to be able to do it and it'll make him feel bad yeah. or it'll piss him off. Yeah. You know, uh, you have to understand, and that's, I've, that takes some time. You, you, you just have to kind of uh, just hold back a little bit from putting yourself in the picture uh, until you think it's the right time. And there are times when you say, well, this isn't going anywhere. Let's do something else. You know? And that's, that's the way it is. And everybody knows when something isn't going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But there's this te- sometimes a tendency just to keep worrying that slipper until it's nothing left. Yeah. And... Uh, so, so you do have, and you, I mean, that's my job. I'm, I'm supposed to be in charge. I'm running this session, and they want to hear from me if, if that's the way it is. They, I've worked with some people as an engineer when I was engineering who wouldn't say anything, and they, the, no feedback whatsoever. Like I'll say, well, let's do it again, or let's listen or something like that. I'm a big fan of listening. Uh, let's see what. Let's listen to what we're doing here, and then everybody will come in and listen for a minute or two and say, "Oh, okay. Now, now I see where I fit. Uh, now we can. Okay. Now let's just do it again." And or maybe they just need to fix one little thing, and everything's fine. You just, but you need to listen. And uh, there, but there are. Uh, you know, some producers that either they're saying nothing, like that. That this happened. This uh, no names here, but <laughs> the I recorded Allison Krauss's first album, and um, so she and she was 16 years old, and had real good players in the studio, and so she she was great, you know, and the, the track would stop. They come to the end and the guy is sitting there saying nothing nothing and it goes on and Jack's studio has no windows so they're in there sitting yeah <laughs> what do we do I yeah. mean oh it killed me yeah. that was all I could do to say can't you say something you know so and then there are other there are other producers that tell people what to play. Right. And they don't like because yeah. they tell me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they tell me about the session. They, when I play in Nashville, very, there is not, guys aren't working as much as they used to, but I still play or Dan Dugmore. He, he is still doing two or three sessions a day. And, uh, and then he wants to come and play with us. Sometimes I say, Dan, you you can take a night off if you. No, no, no. I want to do this. I just had a rough day <laughs> with so and so, telling him what to play, and it just drives them nuts. It they they it's hard to get a flow going if someone is always interrupting, you know. And um, and I've watched some pretty big name producers at work, and I'm always I must say a lot of the time I'm really puzzled at their the way they go about things and yeah. um they they get 
they they have a track record. The records they make have sold, and I just don't get it how they make these records because there's a lot of sitting around going on. Yeah. And and uh, while this one particular guy was at a session, it involved um, the it was a Nancy Griffith, but I was kind of piggybacking on a, this other guy's session, and we were using the part of the crickets rhythm section uh, of Buddy Holly's crickets and um, uh, J.I. Allison and Joe J.O.B. Malden, the bass player and the drummer. And J.I.'s got his own drums. And it, it, it wasn't the song we were doing. had nothing to do with the drums. It was just keep it time. But this guy insisted on setting up his own kit of drums and took about an hour to do it. Meanwhile, all these guys were sitting around. Just sitting there. <laughs> I, I said, "Are you having fun?" <laughs> I couldn't resist. Yeah. <laughs> are you? Do you know? Uh, are you familiar with Rick Rubin? I know. Guy? I I don't know him, but I am yeah. familiar with him. I, I know all the Johnny Cash stuff that he's done. Yeah. And I think he did a fantastic service to everyone by doing that. Yeah. My a, a good good friend of mine, David Ferguson, engineered all. Pretty much all that stuff. Mm. And Dave Fergie, Fergie is another of Cowboys' students. Fergie started coming over to Cowboys when he was a teenager and hanging out. And he he was our golfer for a while. And he'd go run to the store and get stuff and whatever. And then, like Jack would do, said, why don't you learn how to run the board? So he did. And the first real job that Jack had for him to do was... To come with him over to Memphis to the Sun Studio and record you too. Yeah, first job. That's pretty, yeah. Right yeah. at the deep end of the pool. Yeah. yeah. And they never looked back. Recorded Angel of Harlem. A great, one of their best cuts. And um, so Fergie recorded all that Johnny Cash stuff for Rick Rubin. Yeah. And he's a very interesting producer, I think. You know, he does things totally... In some ways, he does the same because... He, he just set Johnny up in his cabin with the three or four or five pickers and let him do this stuff. But he brought him that material, some of that material he would never have even known about. Right. Kurt Cobain and, you know, different things. Yeah. And then he, and he also had Johnny doing very old songs that he did know and a great mix. And he's a, evidently a keyboard nut and has all kinds of keyboards at his place out there. And he would add them. With, I think Ben Montench did a lot of that stuff. Hmm. And I think it's brilliant myself. Yeah. I think it's very interesting sonically and artistically and got Cash into a whole other place, you know, before he died. He had... It had run out of steam. Nobody knew what to do with them anymore except the same old thing. Right. And Rick Rubin understood it. I, I got a lot of admiration for him. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I've, I've really enjoyed, I've been watching inter and listening to interviews with him. And I, your approach kind of reminded me of him because he's he seems to be very much not about imposing his will upon the artist, but to set up a space that can make them comfortable. Yeah. And then basically say, like, let's figure out what's the best version of you guys and, and make it happen. Yeah. And he does, I don't think he even, you know, touches the board or anything. He's just yeah. very much like a, 
I don't know what the word would be, but he's sort of some sort of mentor or something. Well, he's a producer. And a, well, and a producer, obviously, and, yeah. But I mean, but his approach, you know, you do, actually, yeah, kind of. And uh, he definitely has a vision and a sound that really worked for Cash. Yeah, and I like that also. It's like some producers, you know, their records because of the sound. Yeah. You know, you know that oh, this is this yeah. is this person's and his. He, I mean, he's worked with such a variety of people. Yeah. You know, he does country with the Dixie Chicks and Johnny yeah. Cash, and he does heavy metal and then rap and all kinds of different stuff. And you don't know because of a certain sound that it's him. But do you look back through his repertoire and it's uh-huh. it's all pretty solid. You know, <laughs> it's all pretty great stuff. Um, it, are there any? Um, Musicians, uh, like uh, current day musicians that you're excited about? Boy, that's a funny question because I should be listening more than I am. And um, uh, so I, I, I think Sam Amadon is an interesting artist, you know. I don't know. No. Well, his family comes from Brattleboro, but he's, I first heard him over in, we spent a lot of time in Ireland for few years and we're still in kind of connected there and there's radio program um uh, there was a show we could listen to called in the blue of the night and now it has a different name with a different host but it's a similar very eclectic kind of music and that's where i first heard him he does a version of walking boss that doc watson used to do and a really interesting different and I've seen him. He's played at Chandler. And um, he he does a lot of this older material, but in a very interesting new way. Is that somebody coming? Creeping? I think it's Carol. Yeah, yeah. it's Carol. <laughs> so I should maybe shut that door or something. Or, well, we could say. Well, yeah. I don't even think she noticed us. <laughs> yeah, well, she knows we're here, but oh, okay. she's trying to be quiet. Oh, that's very nice yeah. of her. Yeah. It's it's funny um, because I don't know you guys well, but I know who you are and vice mm. versa. And I've done some stuff around your property. And it's, it was funny reading or listening to the book and then hearing this um, this journey of meeting Carol so long ago and yeah. then reuniting. And, and it, it's almost like uh, it takes on a different like now I see Carol and I'm like, it's seeing someone out of a, this story, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You couldn't have made that one up. Um, maybe just one more question I have. Sure. If you, so given all the shows that you've seen musically and the ones that you've put on and been part of, if you could put together like a dream bill of one, one show to end them all of, of <laughs> any, any artists living or dead, um, what would, what would that be? Oh goodness. Well, that'd be a very long show. <laughs> yeah. It still had to be. <laughs> uh, well, you know, of course, um, you know, Merle Haggard. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, that's way too many. Um, it, it's I have been very lucky to, um, because of my work, especially at Newport and with both festivals, the jazz and the folk, uh, to to be around some really incredible geniuses i think you know i traveled on the road with thelonious monk you know for a couple of summers and um and then when i was running the club i got to know mose allison very interesting person and um 
than Muddy Waters. I mean, Bill Monroe and Muddy Waters, just right there. Those two people had so much to um, just inspire you uh, and such depth to them as people and creators. Uh, when you see what they did with the, what, the music they came up with that, that was surrounded them as young people living in the country and bringing their music to the city and big commercial, a commercial environment and how they transformed it and then how they, as band leaders, brought people through their bands to create a whole school of music, bluegrass and Chicago blues. I mean, those two men, basically, there are other people around, but those are the two, as far as I'm concerned, that really uh, did that. And to get to know them and to be considered friends with them, I, I, it's hard for me to believe. Yeah. And... So they'd be on the show. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I did when that book came out. I I I tried to figure out a way to do a show with them, but it didn't work at the time. Logistically, it didn't happen. So now, um, and now there is too many, way too many. Um, but uh, so many of the people that I've I've worked with are people that I, I never, ever get tired of. Mm. And then the bluegrass world is full of people. A, a lot of them, uh, not necessarily. Del McCurry, I think, is my favorite practicing bluegrass band. The Del McCurry band right now, Del's at my age. He's 80, 81. His sons play with him, and that band is my idea of the greatest bluegrass band maybe I've ever heard, including mm. Monroe and Flat and Scruggs at, at when they were really good. But I suppose not Monroe when he had Flat and Scruggs with him. That, that was number one in that band. But Del McCurry and his sons are fantastic, really deep, and deliver the goods vocally and instrumentally like nobody else, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, people like that. And I've known Dell since he, he was in the Bluegrass Boys when Bill Keith was, so he could be, he'd be on my show. <laughs> <laughs> and he has come down to the station in and sat in with me uh, like that, you know. Um, the Bluegrass world is full of Sam Bush, another one. And Sam is incredibly talented and loves, loves to play. And if he isn't doing something, he'll come and play with us. Because he just has so much fun doing it, he really does. And so I love people like that. And uh, so it's it's quite a long, quite a long list. Uh, I mean, to say nothing of the Irish Dements, and uh, unfortunately, some of the artists that I've worked with are not in good health. Nancy Griffith isn't in good health, and Hal Ketchum isn't in good health. So they wouldn't be on the show. Mm-hmm. Which is really a shame. Yeah. Well, Jim, I mean, if there's anything else you want to talk about, more than more than happy to. But otherwise, forever. Otherwise, I just want to say a huge thank you. Oh, I, um, my pleasure. If you can make something out of this, good, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think people get a lot out of it. Okay, good. 
All right. Great. All right. Well, that didn't hurt. No. <laughs> Would you be willing to play one of your own? Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Um. Well, this is a song. Um, I wrote when my heart was broken, <laughs> and uh, uh, I was up in Canada, Magog, not too far from here, in my motor home. I woke up, and my girlfriend had told me that that was that, and so I wasn't too happy. And uh, but I had my yellow legal pad and my guitar, and um, and um, so I, I wrote this and. Um, Eventually, um, I recorded it as some a demo of stuff I was writing, and um, I, I went down to Nashville with a tape of the, some of these songs, and Jack Lemon heard the song and really liked it, and it opened the door for me, this song. You always say, it only takes a song. That's a Nashville saying, it only takes a song. <laughs> Sometimes they're a long time coming, but it's called Only the Best. She was only the best. No need to sit here and cry. Why don't you give your heart a rest? Why don't you learn how to say goodbye? She never lied, she told you the truth. She never told you that she loved you. Now you're feeling like a fool. You're going down slow and sit here and cry why don't you give your heart a rest why don't you learn how to say goodbye it's just her eyes her laugh and her body that keep her on your mind it's just her soul you see in the morning Dancing like a dream in your eyes She was only the best No need to sit here and cry Why don't you give your heart a rest Why don't you learn how to say goodbye She's gotta go She can't stay with you She's finally found her home at last You ought to know you helped her find it 
soon you'll be part of her past. She was only the best. No need to sit here and cry. Why don't you give your heart a rest? Why don't you learn how to say goodbye? Why can't you learn how to say go beautiful thank you you're welcome can you tell us just a little bit about that guitar that's yeah that got some character. i bought this uh in 1976 from a guy named randy wood in nashville and uh i had my original guitar that i bought when i was 16 um uh was a d18 just like hank had and um I paid, I bought brand new at Boston Music Company for $135 and um, no discount. I didn't know anything about discounts then. And um, so I had that guitar for 22 years and I, I was having dinner in Cambridge, a place I'd been in many times, Charlie's Kitchen. And um, I had parked, I, at this time I had a motor home. It was probably about 1975, and um, I had a motor home, and I parked it just down the street while I went in to have dinner. And I came out, and I did a double take of it. So where uh, I thought, I, where did I park? And it was a pretty big thing. It was yeah. painted yellow and orange, and it was gone. And um, by the end, uh, long story, but I I got the vehicle back and my guitar was in the vehicle of course and I called up the garage that had recovered it and said is my guitar in there and he said well I don't know I'll take a look and the case was in there but the guitar was gone these kids had just taken it for a joyride and smashed up the inside of the thing and probably smashed my guitar I'd have that guitar only guitar I ever had really and um, and I I didn't have any money, and uh, that I had a gig that weekend. I had to hire Tennis Lily to drive me to the gig and play on the gig, and I got all the money I made. <laughs> so, uh, and then I had I borrowed a guitar for almost a year, and then I finally scraped together six hundred dollars, and I got another guitar, another D eighteen, and bought that one up in Woodstock, and that didn't even last a year. I was in Cambridge once again. Helping, I was helping my mother move some stuff around. I had her car, which was an old Chevy two-door coupe my uncle Jim had had in it. And kids were always asking her about it because it was a potential hot rod. But So that night I'd gone to see John Kerner, Spider John Kerner, at a place called the Inn Square Men's Bar. And Bonnie Raid happened to come in. And one thing led to another. And I... And at the end of the evening, I said uh, she was going to stay in a hotel in Cambridge, and, and uh, I said, I'll give you a ride to your hotel. And my car is right here, but it wasn't there. So that guitar was gone. I don't leave my guitar in cars anymore. So it took me another while to get together some more money. And by this time, I was down in Nashville, and I bought this for $600. The guy who had it before me had done a lot of this work before me, 
he must have been left-handed because it were, and then he also the back he had a belt belt buckle this guy really moved around and gave it a good thrashing but it's a great sounding guitar and I've never had it refinished I had an accident Aer Lingus managed to put a hole in it right here and I had a guy in Ireland patch it. I had an envelope full of bits and pieces. He put it all back together. You can't tell. That's remarkable. You can't even tell. Yeah, you can't. And it's held for several years. It's been on a lot of plane rides. And um, it's. I love the way it sounds. And um, so that's my deal. This is an invention of Bill Keith's. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little plastic envelope you could slip things in and out of. Yeah. It's been on there for almost as long as the guitar I've had the guitar. So that's it. Hey. So I play around here once in a while with Bob Amos and his band. You ever know them? I don't think so. They have a really good bluegrass band from yeah. St. Johnsbury. Okay. Uh, Bob Amos and Catamount Crossing, they're called. Oh, Cat yeah, yeah, I do. I've seen them at um, uh, concert dances. Oh. They, I think they've played at concert dances. Really? No, no maybe I'm thinking no. Atlantic Crossing. Atlantic Crossing, yeah. No, Bob Amos and Catamount. Uh, they're a really good, good kind of solid banjo. He's a banjo player and uh, good singing. And every nice band to play with. I enjoy playing with them. I just played the Peachum Festival up in Peachum. Is, is that like a family thing? The, the, the Peachum Festival? No, 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 his daughter plays them. Yeah, I think Sarah. I, I think they're yeah. I, uh, I think they were at one of those um, those uh, camps I think they had in, 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 in. Uh, yeah, he probably